listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am Ray. And I wanted to cut you off before you continue, Nate, because I've been doing some reading. I've been doing some research and I feel like I need the input from a film major like yourself to answer the internet's and hopefully our viewers most pressing questions. Absolutely. I'm I'm ready. Okay, so I, I just I had a question, you know, we right before we got on we were talking about the Venice mm-hmm. Film Festival and the Whale and how amazing and excited we are about this new Darren Aronofsky film. But I feel like there is an even bigger topic that we haven't discussed that we should as as film nerds. Yes. And I have I have a question for you, Nate. Are you Team Olivia Wilde or Team Florence Pugh here? Oh my god! <laughs> I would say I'm I'm Team Florence Pugh probably. <laughs> I, I will keep it at the bare minimum, but I will say that from what I've read, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think Olivia Wilde's in over her head a little bit. With some of the remarks that she's made. I feel like this whole, like, thing is a mess. And clearly, what we've got out of it more than anything is that the movie just sucks. <laughs> it doesn't seem like people are liking it. So let me ask you one, one more thing then. Are you Team Harry Styles or Team Chris Pine? Well, of course I'm Team Harry Styles. I, I want to I talk about movies in the depth and capacity that Harry Styles can. Where you say, like, it's... a. It's a movie. It's like you're going to a movie. All I know is I am excited to watch a movie that feels like a movie. Yeah, it feels like a film. And then Chris Pine's in the background, like, rolling his eyes. That, that... It, it's so funny because, like, the media is a disaster. They always have been a disaster. And the thing is, is, like, I've watched interviews with Olivia Wilde. She seems like a totally fine person. And who knows how much of the shit that she says has been taken out of context. I don't really have any idea. I just think it's dumb. And then what it ends up doing is, like, I saw the trailer for the movie. And I was like, you know what? This looks really good. And then it's like, oh, here's all this celebrity drama surrounding the whole situation. And I'm just like, I don't really care about it. I just care whether or not the movie is good or not and i will say her last movie book smart i didn't think was very good so we'll see if i like this one a little bit more but who knows what do you think about all of it <laughs> well th- this was going to be my final question before this little silly thing i wanted to do and this is actually a more of a serious question i i really am legitimately curious what you think celebrity drama does it make or break a movie for you oh i couldn't care less okay period i yeah i on- honestly like I don't know. There's times where, like, I mean, I can still watch a movie when a celebrity's a dick. I'm so detached from, like, the people themselves because at the end of the day, people glorify actors and actresses in this way that is just, like, so unbelievably weird where it's just, like, they're human beings who are talented at something and that got put in this situation. So I think all the drama of it, most of the time when you end up looking into it or you, like, see the perspective from those people, it's so overblown and stupid and it's just, like, I don't know. I, I just want to watch movies and not deal with all that bullshit. All of you, y'all heard it first. Nate is team is team Miss Flo. Yeah, well, of course. I love I love Florence Pugh. I just needed I just needed your your professional film school opinion on this very 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 important subject in the film world. That's all I wanted. Well, I'll just I'll just flip it back at you. 
are you are you interested in the movie? Because I thought the trailer looked good. Honestly, I didn't even know what this movie was until somebody asked me, are you going to watch the new Harry Styles movie? And I'm just like, wait, Harry Styles is an actor? <laughs> so I want to go ahead and take this conversation in a different direction, uh, uh, not talking about celebrity controversy, but talking about uh, A24 as a whole, because that's what our subject is for this time around. And I thought it'd be fun to just kind of start the episode by talking about some of our favorite scores from A24 films. I just thought it'd be fun to quickly mention uh, one or two of our favorites. So I'd love to hear, Ray, what's what's a score that you really just love from an A24 film that's like one that you'll either play in the background all the time or one that you feel like you just can't get out of your head? One of the scores, and I feel like this is... So this is a composer that has worked with a director that has been involved with A24 a lot, David Lowry, he uses a composer named Daniel Hart a lot. And Daniel Hart is the the singer for this band called Dark Rooms. And they're like a dark pop, like indie pop, but like with a darker, grittier edge to them. He composed the score for A Ghost Story, which... Oh, I love that. I love that score so much. The score is incredible. And also the song I Get Overwhelmed, which is performed by Dark Rooms, his actual band. Which, by the way, I've seen them twice and they're incredible live. If you ever get a chance to see Dark Rooms live, they're incredible. And they've, they've played that song from a ghost story live both times I've seen them. And I got a chance to sit down. Not sit down, but just kind of chat with Daniel Hart for a little bit after a show. We talked about some of his upcoming projects. He actually told me he was working at the time on um, The Old Man and the Gun with David Lowry. So, you know, it was, it was really nice to talk to him and kind of get to know a composer and seeing him just like as a down-to-earth guy was awesome. But the performance that he did was incredible. But also like just that music that he composes, especially, particularly for a ghost story. Um, I feel like that score is so powerful, especially for a movie that's so quiet and subdued. Having a score that's so euphoric, is it's really, really quite something. Yeah, and the score to Ghost Story is so, so beautiful because I feel like it helps immerse you into that world, which, I, I mean, when I explain a ghost story to people and I talk to them about that movie, it's really hard to even call it a movie. It feels a lot more like an art house piece. It's it has there's so much symbolism in it. There's so much that you can pull away from that film. But like it's really hard to just look at it as a straightforward narrative. And I feel like a lot of people are like, "Oh my god, it's just so boring." But it's a beautiful exploration of grief and there's so much going on in that film, but that score really just makes it all the more powerful. Yeah, definitely that one is the first one that jumps out of the page and a ghost story. What about you? What's one for you? We'll kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. Yeah, so one I've been actually listening to quite a bit lately, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. I actually just pre-ordered the repress because I wanted it so bad, but it's the uh, Under the Skin score from Mika Levy. The music of that movie, I feel like that's a, another film similarly to what you're saying, like a ghost story. There's virtually no dialogue in Under the Skin, and everything is very visual. Everything you're, you're picking apart from that movie as far as like the symbolism and what the character represents and what's going on in this world is all pieced together by the visuals. So a score is super important. 
to a movie that's mostly visual to kind of keep your attention. And I feel like this score really creates this like super uh, like uncomfortable feeling that also keeps you invested. And it's just really ambient and beautiful. And it's it's like one of the best science fiction scores in years. And I'm so glad they repressed it because I don't own a copy of it. And I'm waiting on them to announce that they've shipped it. But I love the Under the Skin score. That is a great score. I also love that like or a film that's meant to be more of like a horror sci-fi film the the score is not very loud it's more it's more of a mood setting score rather than oh let's play this really fast you know violin string arrangement to scare you no it's more of like a, a mood setter it sets the mood it gives that whole vibe like this darkness to the movie that can only be added by that really electronic kind of dark ambient vibe that it has going on yes it's just amazing the other one that i wanted to bring up probably arguably the best a24 score in my opinion that wasn't composed by like you know a prof at least not that i'm aware of that this that these two gentlemen have done any other work in film but and you're gonna light up because i know you're a fanboy but can we just for a moment appreciate our our boys that score swiss army men oh my god mr andy hall and robert mcdowell i love that score so much and i think that the fact that most of it is acapella is just unbelievable the daniels like even with everything everywhere all at once i feel like those movies are so unique their own type of style and to have a conventional score wouldn't really make sense and I feel like both movies, the scores are so incredibly unconventional. And when I watched Swiss Army Man and I knew the reason why I watched that movie is because the guys from Manchester Orchestra were talking about it and that they'd worked on it. And I was like, wow, this is just such a unique and brilliant score to a movie that's just as unique and brilliant. And you have um, the, the cameo from Andy Hall at the end. <laughs> which is amazing. Yes, which I currently see Andy Hall every day because he's tattooed on my left arm now. Oh, there you go. Love, I love that um, that Swiss Army Man score. I was, I actually, it was one of the few scores that I have purchased blindly before having even seen the movie. I'm so glad that the Daniels blew up with everything everywhere all at once and I hope a lot of people go back and, uh, and, watch Swiss Army Man and appreciate that film as well because I think it's just as brilliant and uniquely original as Everything Everywhere All at Once. I just think the marketing for that was better and I think that you know, people, because of how much they love this whole idea of, like, multiverses because of what Marvel has put out, that, like, it was really successful. But I hope people can go back and watch that movie and get a lot out of it. Because I love Swiss Army Man. It's so good. It's so good. So what is your other score that you wanted to bring to the table real quick? Yeah, so this might this might honestly be kind of a, a basic answer. But uh, I, I've been listening to my vinyl copy a lot lately, and I just think that it's brilliant. But that's the Bobby Krillick mix. Midsummer score. I I cannot believe that it was like his first horror film score. Uh, but apparently he's in a band called Hacks and Cloak. And he yeah, was, they're weird. He, yeah, they're awesome. I I'd never heard any of their music, but I know that he was with them. He's was with them ten years prior to making this score. But I feel like 
you know, when Ari Aster decided, I'm going to make a horror movie that almost completely takes place during the daytime, that scoring the film was probably really difficult to create that atmosphere. And I love how light some of the music is and almost like airy and like, I, I don't know, it almost feels like a fairy tale at times, the way the score plays out. And then it just gets so dark and dreary at moments. And it's just brilliant. And listening to it recently, I was just like, wow, this this truly is one of like the most brilliant brilliant scores of like the past 20 years and just listening to it over and over again. I know Colin Stetson worked with him on Hereditary, but I feel like Ari Aster similarly to Robert Eggers just knows the right people to work with to craft these scores to really help create that ambiance and environment that they want for the films that they make. Well, and then Bobby Krillick went on and scored this video game called Returnal and I have I haven't played it cuz it's for PS5 and I don't have that kind of money. I actually ended up checking out the score just based on the fact that it was him and it was incredible and I own it on vinyl I've never played a video game but I love the score because he kind of keeps that dark ambient thing that he's got going on with um, with Midsommar. Speaking of amazing film scores the movie we're going to talk about today has a pretty incredible uh, score and the movie we're going to talk about today is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This was my recommendation. Ray picked between this and uh, Under the Silver Lake and settled on The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So before we get into our deep dive discussion, Ray, this was your first watch. And I just want to ask you, what are your thoughts on this movie? I'm still thinking about it. Not my thoughts, but as in like the movie itself. This movie resonated with me like on a personal level. Like I've watched a lot of movies and I was like, oh, that was incredible. That that was great, you know, but at the end of the day, I don't resonate with a farmer in Iceland having a, a kid goat, you know, like that doesn't hit me on a personal level like this one did. This one touched on a lot of topics, you know, gentrification, race, you know, cultural identity, masculinity, like all these things that I, I resonate with deeply and being able to see this film and i don't know usually i watch films and i'm like I, I i will watch the film and as once the film ends i will think about it and be like okay what what did this mean to me what did this represent to me but this one as the film is going i'm like oh this clearly represents this concept to me at least and that was just as the movie progressed i kept just linking different scenes and we'll get get into it i know i'm sounding really vague but once we get into it but like a lot of these instances in the movie that just kind of made me feel connected to them on, like i said on a personal level you know being hispanic but also being raised in the u.s and having predominantly uh white friends but also trying to juggle the culture my you know my hispanic heritage and, and that juggling it, it was done so beautifully and so intimately in this film that I just couldn't help but connect with almost every second of this movie. Oh, and, and I completely agree with you. And I think what's amazing about this movie in general, which we'll talk about completely, is you coming from a Hispanic background, me coming from I'm, I'm just a white guy. I, I mean, just like a, a regular white dude. But I feel like this movie has so much 
that anyone can connect with when they watch it. And I feel like there's all those themes that you highlighted perfectly just now that I feel like you can grasp onto and watch this movie. And honestly, like I was rewatching part of this before we recorded and I, I mentioned this to you off the podcast, but I cannot believe that this movie did not get nominated for any awards at all. I feel like it's just so masterfully done. And the fact that this was Joe Talbot's directorial debut, that's saying a lot because this movie, it's brilliant. It, it's brilliantly shot. The cinematography might be some of the best in A24's entire catalog. The score is beautiful. The performances are amazing. It's just like, I, I can't believe this movie didn't get more love when it came out because it really is one of the best in their whole catalog. Yeah, it's it was really, like, it was awesome. It was filled, like, I'm talking about filled with talent. I mean, just going back on the score real quick, that was composed by Emil uh, Most. Moseri. It looks like that was his first score too. So I mean, this thing is just filled. He went and scored uh, Minari. This film is just loaded with talent. Not only with the director and and the music, but also the the two leads are absolutely astounding. I mean, the actor that plays Mont, I couldn't look away. He was just I. He was he just every scene he was in, he. I couldn't look away. And Jimmy Fails, the lead uh, who plays himself in the movie, uh, he co-wrote this with Joe Talbot, and he said that this movie is semi-autobiographical, and his performance is unbelievable. I hope this movie ends up getting him a ton more acting roles, because I was completely enamored with his performance. And obviously, there's a ton of people that you recognize in this movie. Mike Epps shows up at one point. Danny Glover's in this. There's all kinds of incredible talent in this movie, but like the two, the two leads are just amazing. So the movie opens with uh, introducing you to our two lead characters, Jimmy Fails and Montgomery, and they're best friends. And the opening scene of this film really just kind of gives you the entire idea of what this movie is going to be like. You have Jimmy and Mont are like skateboarding through San Francisco, and there's this minister who's like up on a literal soapbox, and he's talking about how. Like, the city is completely changed. There's all these guys in giant hazmat suits. And they're all white guys that are in hazmat suits. And he's making a comment like, why are all these people in these suits? Why aren't we wearing suits? Like, all this other crazy stuff. And talking about how the city's kind of gone to crap. And then talking about what it used to be and how it used to be. And that really, I feel like, sets the tone for just what you're getting yourself into and all the themes that are going to come into play later on in the movie. There's also like uh, um, something that I love that this movie did. And, you know, hopefully this doesn't sound controversial. I really don't mean it from a controversial standpoint. But like, you know, I know you jokingly said earlier, like, oh, I'm just like a boring white guy. But I feel like there is this like culture nowadays where if you are a white, a white person, oh, you're just this basic boring white person. But I... Me, as an outsider, someone that isn't a white person, someone who is from a different culture, when I and, and being surrounded by, by white people all the time, I do feel like it's really easy to make a movie where you make the white man the villain. I think it's really easy to do that nowadays. So uh, something that I love that this movie did is this movie, even though it, there is heavy topics about gentrification, I personally don't think that this movie wants to place the blame on the evil white man. I think this movie is more about self-discovery than anything else. It could it could have been very easy for them to make a movie demonizing white people, but they they took it into in a different and 
deeper route in my opinion for sure i think that you know there there are definitely uh there are definitely moments where you can kind of see a little bit of how white people have affected the culture like the first scene when they're skateboarding through there and they get into downtown san francisco there's a lot of close-up shots of white people kind of giving them a weird glance but then you have that one white guy who like starts taking his clothes off while they're skateboarding and says like take me with you and he's like (laughs) he's like screaming at him and and i feel like it's more of a commentary on gentrification as a whole and how like yes white people are predominantly an issue for why gentrification occurs and it's a horrible thing pushing people out of their homes to create these like high-rise buildings that are super expensive that only wealthy people can afford to live in but i think it's it's true what you said they do a great job of balancing it to where it's not just like a oh we're just demonizing white people in this movie they do a good job balancing it so you have that preacher who's speaking at the beginning and they're skateboarding through they end up skateboarding by this victorian house and jimmy stops by it and he says man they're really letting this go to shit again and you don't really know what he's talking about goes up on this like balcony and starts uh he stands on like a bird feeder and he starts painting the windowsill and this old white couple comes up and this lady starts like throwing her groceries at him and she's like get off my my bird feeder or my my bird my my bird bath yeah and he's like but this is falling apart i'm trying to fix it and she just yells stop fixing my house and you can tell the husband's like he doesn't care he's like do whatever you want to it i don't really care and you find out that jimmy says that this house was built by his grandfather and that his family has owned it for forever. And so he feels connected to this home. It feels like a part of him because as we learn later on in the film, his grandfather was uh, what they say was like the first black man in San Francisco at this time in 1946 where there was, it was like during wartime where there was a lot of Japanese Americans there and they ended up getting pushed out. And he, uh, Jimmy makes a comment and says like he didn't want something that wasn't his own so he built this house for himself and so the movie really starts off by telling you like jimmy wants this house he wants to own it he wants it to be a part of his life i also love just like a little a little thing that something really small that i love from from that scene where he's painting the the windowsill where she was like we're gonna call the cops he's like we're not gonna call the cops like he's almost trying to like be the cool guy but also calm his wife down he's like we're not gonna call the cops it's like we're not gonna do that uh, I just that's to me that was such a hilarious moment because you know I wonder how many times because we hear about some of these situations in real life where you have the quote unquote Karens flipping out and it makes you wonder how often you have there is a a partner on the other side just kind of shaking their heads going like oh what did I get myself into with this woman <laughs> So, so you're introduced to them, and then quickly after, we go to uh, Mont's house, where he lives with his dad, played by Danny Glover. And this is the introduction into, there's this group of guys who are constantly standing outside of the house. And almost every time we're introduced to these guys, they're fighting about something. They're always, like, poking fun at each other. They make a lot of, like, homophobic remarks. They're constantly calling each other, like... 
I can't even remember what the what like the slur is they use, but it's something like really old. It might it's it's like fairies or something like that, where it's like they're constantly calling each other this name. That they're poking at each other's masculinity, and it starts to open up, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we get deeper into the movie. But it really opens up this larger conversation of Jimmy and Mont are these incredibly intellectual, refined guys who like that. I I thought it was so funny, Ray, when they first get into that house and mont starts talking about all the books that they left behind and he's like they left they left he's like they left plath they left philistines (laughs) and (laughs) love that and so they're super intellectual guys and then you have this group of men who are outside of his grandfather's house who like they're they're for all intensive purposes they're like brute masculine men they they're just like who is the toughest of all of us and so they're constantly making fun of Mont and Jimmy they make fun of the fact that he skateboards they make fun of the way that they dress they're constantly calling Mont a weirdo they they say he's like i think the first time we meet them they make a joke about like them they said do you did you shower together or something and i can't even remember what the remark they make is afterwards Oh, he just says something to the effect of like, oh no, I was telling him not to eat the fish from, from the water because they're toxic, because the water is toxic. They're constantly butting heads with them and they play a bigger part as the movie continues on. But I think that them as a whole is a huge commentary on toxic masculinity, especially in uh, African-American communities where uh, you could tell that it's like the director and maybe even Jimmy writing the screenplay about these guys who grow up in these communities who feel like they have to be this tough guy. And when we start to learn a little bit about Kofi and about his background, it starts to make a lot more sense as to why he is the way that he is. And it's really fascinating. But then we go into the house. We're introduced to Danny Glover's character who's blind. And they're sitting there watching this movie. And uh, Mont is like explaining what happens. But even really early on in the film, you just get the idea that Jimmy and Mont are two very caring, empathetic, and compassionate individuals. Who It's just hard not to love everything they do on screen because they're just so hilarious. They have such inviting personalities. And they're just so incredible incredibly well acted i also got the vibe when i started watching until where i was and obviously you find that a little bit more down down the road but they're so they are very similar as far as personalities go but they're also very different you know you have jimmy who is a skater he kind of has this like really damaged relationship with his family um and then you have mont who for all intents and purposes he's kind of like that nerdy guy who likes poetry who likes um literature very well educated, very artistic. You know, we we find out that he's a writer and he also is good uh, with drawings and he has a very beautiful relationship with with his grandpa to the point where he's explaining beat by beat what's happening in the movie so he can enjoy a film with his grandpa. So like they both seem so different but also so much alike, which I thought was really really endearing to the point where it makes you wonder how how does this like kind of rough rugged skater ends up with this very soft artistic person how do they come together which i thought that was really interesting seeing that dichotomy between both of them yeah it's incredibly fascinating and we learn we get more glimpses i feel like into jimmy's life than we do into mons like we get an idea about why mons the way that he is and why he cares about the things that he does but i feel like jimmy we get a lot more fleshing out because we meet his mom we meet his dad we meet his aunt so we get a lot more into 
who he is as a person where Mont, it's more of just like this exploration of him writing this play, the way he acts around other people. And yeah, it, it really is an interesting and fascinating dichotomy between these two people uh and and their relationship from early on you can tell they're essentially like brothers they're so close and the fact that they're letting jimmy live in the house is it, it says a lot as it is and uh early on we they leave the house and when uh they're leaving the house they're about to get on the bus to go take care of the um, the house in downtown and they've got like a rake or whatever and they're about to take the bus and that's when Mike Epps pulls up in that car and Mont says like, hey, isn't that the car that you used to sleep in? And you're introduced uh, to Mike Epps' character who I can't remember what his relationship is to them but they say that he stole his his car and that he's living out of that car and you get some exposition about how uh jimmy doesn't go see his dad anymore he's like oh your dad's all alone living in that apartment you really need to like go see your dad because he's living on his own he's not doing very well and so like you're, you're kind of torn at the beginning you're like well is jimmy just not a good son is he not doing the right thing because we haven't been introduced to his dad and that's when they pull up near the house where you see the one house that's been destroyed and they said hey wasn't this the whatever house and mike epps makes the comment says like yeah there was like a hundred people living in there and it was rent controlled and the landlord ended up getting them all screwed they moved them all out now they're all homeless and they're tearing the place down to build up like apartment complexes and that's really like the first moment of like okay this theme of gentrification really is hitting hard in the movie and is going to continue to be a prevalent idea throughout the remainder of the film. And I love that part where he, he delivers that line that nothing, you, you never own anything, you, nothing's ever really yours. I feel like that's where we get that first glimpse of that motif of like, you don't own anything. Exactly. And, and what's interesting is you get, there's that one scene of that like older guy who's like standing outside of the construction site, like chain smoking a cigar and he, and like the camera pans in. But I thought what was really brilliant in the filmmaking in that is when the, the fence opens up and it's like super like foggy. And when he delivers that line, it's not even with them in the car. It's those guys building that new apartment complex. And I thought that was a really fascinating filmmaking choice to where it's not showing you those characters, but more of this act of like hey all these people have been pushed out of their homes and now they're being this big high rise where people are going to live that's going to be super expensive is going to exist now right and then what happens right after because oh, oh yeah because he takes them to to the house and that's when they see the lady crying yep and then they find out that there is like a dispute over the over the home and that they're moving out but they don't say anything about like oh they're selling the house or anything they're just leaving they're saying that there's like some form of dispute over the house yeah there's a dispute there's a dispute between the uh the woman who lives there and her sister because the woman's mother died which i'm guessing the house was probably owned by the woman's mother and since they're both probably up for owning the house that gets caught into a difficult situation with the like the ability for someone to outright own the home and that's when jimmy and ma end up going to that realtor's office to like say that they're interested in the house but that's when he says that it sounds like an, it's an estate issue and that it, he literally says this could take years and years and years for it to get figured out right and then um yeah they have that whole ordeal where well and then uh, it's funny because that um that realtor that they're talking to i don't know if you ever saw um 
the American Horror Story shows. Yes, that's what that was immediately what I thought of when I saw him. Yeah, he was. He, he was, was the in the clown the, season, the prick, right? Basically, he has a type. I saw him and was like, "Oh my god, it's this asshole." <laughs> yeah, he does. He does a really good job, and he also plays a prick in this movie, movie as well. He, he's been typecasted. Yeah, but you know what? He's just got that face. He's got that face that you kind of just want to punch. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know what it is. He's probably a really nice guy, but he's just got that face you want to punch. So very quickly after that. When they see that, you almost see Jimmy's eyes kind of, like, light up. He's, like, super excited. And that's when him and Mont end up, like, breaking into the home and they just decide, we're going to live there. And they go in and they have this scene where they get all excited about it. Almost to the point where there's a scene where Jimmy's, like, running up the stairs and he falls and he ends up, like, bleeding. He, like, hits his lip and he's, like, bleeding everywhere. But he's smiling because he's just so ecstatic that he's finally in this place that he's wanted to be in for so long. And it's really interesting, too. I, I This was such a subtle moment in the movie, but I thought it was really really sweet where they're uh, laying there and then i think this happens a little later in the movie but so we might end up circling back to this but they're sitting there in the house and jimmy screams and then mont's like the neighbors but then he eggs them on to scream so they start screaming in the house that's that's right after he gets the stuff from uh his sister from his aunt that's right that's like right after they move they move into the stuff which is the scene that takes place right after they're in the house the first time but i don't want to glaze over the scene right before they go visit his aunt which is they're in the house they're kind of just being excited about it and this this tour comes up that are on segways and this guy yeah yeah, this guy who's doing this tour is talking about that time period where japanese people were in san francisco and like everything that happened during that and that this house probably would have been built in the 1800s and jimmy comes out and says no this house was built in 1946 by my grandfather he didn't want to have something that wasn't his so he decided to build his own home and they kind of go back and forth with it and he expects like the tour guide to be super impressed by this or something and the guy kind of goes well on to the next house (laughs) and he just kind of glazes over it he doesn't really care which which is also like i know it's played for laughs but it's also kind of like a commentary on that like again gentrification we're not taking this african-american man who's very proud of the heritage that he's that he has and they're just like "Eh, whatever we don't care exactly and that that also leads to before I think this happens before Jimmy and Mont go to get the stuff from his aunt. I can't remember. This could be flipped, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think he goes to visit his dad first. And we don't know anything about his dad because he ends up like there's there's really this really beautiful scene of this homeless guy singing opera on the side of the road. And it's really just gorgeous. And it's an interesting parallel of like this idea of, you know, you see homeless people, which normally people when they attribute to the homeless, this like gross, disgusting, like why are they, you know, like they're in the way essentially. And it's this guy singing this incredibly beautiful artistic form of music and this dichotomy between like, 
how this person is perceived compared to what he is doing. And I think that's even a larger commentary on just society as a whole. And I thought that for being such like a quick scene, there's a lot of moments like that in this movie where there's these really quick scenes that you could just glance over. But when you sit back and think about it, it really provides a fascinating commentary. And so Jimmy leaves his skateboard with that guy. He goes into his dad's house. Well, his dad lives in this really shitty apartment and he's making bootleg DVDs. DVDs, which I don't know if that made you laugh, Ray, but it cracked me up. They was making bootleg DVDs in 2019. Which is funny because I, I, I yeah... I own a few copies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I thought it was great. So he's in there making it, and he, he tells Jimmy to sit down with him and start helping him cut these things out. And they start talking to one another for a little bit about, like, how things are going or whatever. And uh, Jimmy finally says that he got his own place. He says, like, yeah, it's kind of like when you moved me into that one place uh, for a while that we were living at where essentially – you get the commentary that his dad did the same thing, that they moved into a house somewhere that was empty and that uh, he makes a comment. He's like, did you put the water and the power in your name? And he goes, no, but I'm going to do it. And he goes, that's my boy or something like that. You're doing it like your old man. And he's, he makes some other comment about paying taxes. He's like, well, you didn't pay taxes on the place. He goes, I paid my fair share of taxes, which I thought was an even more interesting commentary. But what's fascinating is he finally admits to that he's moved into their old house. And he says, that's not your house. He says, that's a white community. That's not your house anymore. That's not what you remember. And I told Ray this off the podcast, but what I thought was really interesting is there is a hand-drawn, hand-painted photo of that home in his apartment. And I thought that was so interesting that like this house clearly means a lot to this family, like a ton to them. But Jimmy is still really attached to it and he cares so deeply for it. But his dad has clearly moved past it to where he's like, that's not the community we lived in. That's not the people that we know. This isn't the place you live. And it frustrates him to the point where he tells Jimmy to leave. You know, that that scene was really was one of the moments in the movie that hit me the hardest. The reason being is so I um. Just a little, a little quick side story. I grew up, in, you know, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I, I grew up in El Salvador, but then when we moved to the United States, we moved to a pretty ghetto area in Riverside, California. I mean, it was pretty ghetto. Um, a lot of poverty, a lot of drugs, gang violence, and eventually I moved. You know, I, I went from like these really heavily Hispanic and African American communities to, you know, Provo, Utah. <laughs> so kind of a kind of a different place and I, there's been so many moments and instances in my life where I've been told it's like oh what you know I have actually been told by people that you know it's like oh you think you're white now because you know I live in you know I own a house now and I'm in a very heavily Caucasian neighborhood and you know I've been told by people from before that you know I'm changing that I think I'm white now and that now I want to behave like a white person. So like that moment of them going back and forth kind of hit home for me because I have been in, that, in those shoes where people criticize me telling me, oh, you, you sold out. You, you gave up your culture for this other culture when all I was doing was just looking out for myself and try to do what was best for me. But it gets misread as, oh, you sold out, you know, some form of sellout. That was a really interesting moment for me in the film that kind of hit me really hard. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating too. And, and you know, obviously I'm not 
someone who's had to go through that situation. But I think that's really interesting, too, how that scene with Jimmy's dad also correlates to those guys who stand outside of Montgomery's house where it's almost like they're always criticizing Jimmy and Mont for not fitting in and, like, being different or, like, making passing comments about how they're more, like, effeminate or gay or, like... What, all, all kinds of awful things that they say about them throughout the movie. And it really is fascinating that, you know, I, I've grown up, Ray and I are very similar in that we've grown up in like hardcore scene and like punk and alternative music have been a really big part of our lives. And, you know, I remember growing up and going to like hardcore shows and seeing a lot of black people and Asian people there. And like, you could tell that there were conversations being had about like people feeling uncomfortable in those environments a lot of times because it's like that's those are scenes that are predominantly seen as white and it's so stupid that our culture appropriates these things to be only like enjoyed or appreciated by a person because of the color of their skin and this movie really brings things like that to light where like there's a scene where I'm jumping ahead a little bit but Kofi ends up coming over to their house and we'll talk about that scene in great detail but he makes a com or Jimmy makes a comment to Kofi about like hey do you skate anymore you used to be like really raw and great at skating and he's like no nah, I don't do that shit anymore or whatever and it's almost like Kofi gave that element of himself up because he felt like he had to to fit in with that group of people that he hangs around with. There's another scene that happens with Kofi that also struck me really hard. And I think because a lot of these scenes are kind of intermingle. And as you as you have these like scenes of them putting the house together and bringing things to the house. Like there's that great scene when they're moving in. And, and Jimmy goes up to this one of the neighbors and he's like, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be one of the best neighbors you've ever had. <laughs> And the guy's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I loved that so much. He's like, yeah, I got to get back. Uh, I got to finish taking my stuff in. And the guy, I, I thought what was really interesting too, and you know, you talk about more subtlety in the film. Did you notice the dog was growling at him the whole time? Yeah, I did. I was well, yeah. the reason why I was laughing so hard is because there's been so many instances where like, so my dog has like separation anxiety and he gets nervous around other animals for some reason. So... One time we were watching a movie and there was a dog in, on the screen, but there was also like a, an African-American on the shot as well. And my dog started growling and I like snapped. I was like, Kuva, don't be racist. It reminded me of the episode of King of the Hill where Hank thought Lady Bird was racist. And he got so excited at the end when he found out that Lady Bird just hates plumbers. <laughs> And he, he didn't apply attack the plumber because he was black. He attacked him because he was a plumber. And I like it, it was funny because watching that, it was like that's that's another thing. Like I was saying about the guy singing opera, that's such like a subtlety in the movie. And it's not like they're hitting it over the head, but it's like, yeah, this dog's not used to black people being in this community, and they're not saying it loud, but it's there. And I no, I think that's great. But I want to jump back a little bit before they move into there because I think the scene where he goes and meets his aunt oh, yeah. to get that stuff is so important because his aunt seems to be one of the best people in his life. She seems to be a truly incredible human being who like she cares about him and she talks a lot about what's he doing with his life and she's shocked when he tells her that he's got a place in the downtown and I, I just thought it was a funny little moment of brevity that uh, her husband uh, Ricky when he's doing the skateboarding tricks and she's like biting her lip at him he's like you're so gross well I was actually 
I was actually going to mention that scene too because I thought I, at first he's doing the tricks and you can tell that this woman is not like a young girl. You can tell she's a grown woman with, with a good head on her shoulders and she is, you know, married to this man. I feel like a lot of people make fun of once you get to a certain age and you're still practicing quote unquote young man activities like skateboarding. And then you have this guy like, and I don't know if you've ever fallen off a skateboard, but it hurts like hell. Yes, I have. Uh, it's awful. <laughs> it's awful. And it's even worse when you're over 30s. It happened to me last year. I fell off my skateboard and I swear I was limping the rest of the week. Just from falling. <laughs> but then you see her like, she has this playful banter where she was like, show him your trick, baby. Show him that one trick. And then he falls down and she's like, you still look good, baby. <laughs> I just love that. And then he's like, y'all are so damn cute. Because it's just like, I, I think that's such a beautiful moment in the film. Because you do get to see this really beautiful relationship from this couple that's like, they're older. They're quote unquote older people, but they still are so youthful. And that's such a... Such an awesome thing to just kind of showcase, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's really awesome. And, and I love uh, she, when she's like, do that trick he used to do, baby. And then he, he falls down. She's like, ah, oh, you're still cute, though. And and he ends up helping them move there. And that's when that happens. Well, I And then that leads into a really interesting scene where Mont goes back home for the night. And those guys are outside arguing. And they're arguing with Kofi about, they say that he was like in a, in a fight with somebody about something. And I can't remember what the specifics are, but that he ended up just leaving and not fighting with that person and the guys all kind of make fun of him and poke fun at him about it and it starts to get really heated to the point where you think it's going to get very violent like you just see it and it, and it feels almost like it's get that like the tension is palpable and Mont's like off to the side and he ends up going up to them and like making commentaries like he's a director and saying like you've done it you you did that really well you did you did a really great job and he's like you you stay exactly you stay exactly the same when he's talking to Kofi and he goes man you're so weird man you stop you're not a fucking director or something like that and I, I thought that scene was great because something tense really does end up happening later on a movie that feels like it's juggling really heavy subject matter with those comedic tones that that was a moment where it things got really tense to where you felt like something more extreme could happen and then it was cut off by that moment of comedic levity well something that very subtle that happened in that scene is right after like they kind of make fun of him for talking to them like that you can see Kofi is like processing that differently than the rest of the group Yes, exactly. Even though they're all making fun of him, he is still processing. You can see in his body language the way he's looking at him. He's processing it differently than the rest of that group. Yeah, and I, and I think it's really fascinating too. Like throughout the entire movie, and this was a scene that played on a little earlier. And this is obviously you know not a commentary on anything, but they say the N word a lot in their conversations and obviously like that's a, a form of commonplace in the culture like that's something that just happens but you can tell that's not a word that Jimmy and Mont use a lot Jimmy uses it a couple times through the movie but there's those scenes where Mont is like saying it in the mirror to himself and you wonder like is it him because I'm constantly wondering when I watch it in the film is it him like thinking about wanting to fit in with that group is it him trying to think as a director how to change the way that they enunciate words and say it. I just thought those were, that was such a fascinating scene because it happens like right after that. 
I don't know how familiar you are with um, Donald Glover. Yeah, I, I, he's one of my favorites. So I love Donald Glover, and I don't know how familiar you are with his story, but he, he talks about how he grew up not being allowed to use the N-word and not being allowed to truly, in his words, truly be black. I obviously don't know what that means. Yes. But to him, but to him he was saying that he was never allowed to truly be black growing up. So he kind of unleashed a lot of his frustrations through his Childish Gambino project. So it is interesting because it doesn't sound like that's an isolated experience. Like there's a lot of people in that community that don't feel like they're 100% of that. And, and, I, and I get that to a degree because I've always felt like even though I grew up Hispanic and I grew up having these, um, growing up around that culture, I always felt like I didn't, I never quite fit in, but I also never felt like I quite fit in with Caucasian culture either. So there's this like dichotomy of like, there's something to be said about not feeling like you belong in your own culture, but also not feeling like you could belong in other cultures. There's definitely that that commentary that was really prevalent with his character. And I think that's why I gravitated towards his character a lot because I often feel like I don't 100% fit in with my own culture, but I also don't feel like I fit in with other cultures. So it's, it's, it was a really interesting take that I, I saw throughout the entire film. I think you actually just said it 100% perfectly. And, and it sent me thinking about all those types of things because I feel like it's a huge commentary on our society as a whole too where like I, I'm one of those people who I just I love people and like the color of your skin and your background and where you come from like those all add fascinating facets to people and I think that it builds people and it makes them interesting and different cultures and contexts of cultures make people's lives more fascinating but at the end of the day when I look at a person they're a person to me and I care about them because they're a person and I think this movie looks at that and this scene I, I'm about to talk about with you, Ray, where uh, Jimmy and Mont invite Kofi to come to their house, I think is one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie because it takes this different array of people who all have the same color skin. They all are they all are African American men, but they all have different personality traits. They all are so incredibly different as people, but showing that scene of them in that like faux sauna in their house, like it's a moment of bonding between these three people who are so incredibly different. But at that moment, it's the fact that they're all human beings and they can bond in that that moment of caring about each other just as people where all of that cultural context of fitting into this group or being this type of person because you have to be like this just completely melts away. And I thought that it was one of the most poignant scenes in the entire film. What, what I love too is that there's like this very varying degrees of, of their culture showing up. Like you can almost tell like, because you find out that uh, Kofi and Jimmy have a history. They, they spent some time growing up together and you can see Mont almost like intrigued by that like intrigued by this history he wasn't aware of because you can throughout the film Mont is portrayed as a as a people watcher he's constantly watching people you know as any film nerd as any especially someone writing uh, avidly writing a play he's obviously always watching people and I really love the the reaction Something that I thought was really interesting, I don't know if this was done on purpose, but I thought it was really interesting that both Jimmy and Kofi are just in their underwear and they're just very free and he's still in a, in in a, a robe. robe. I yep. thought that was interesting. I don't know if that was done on purpose, but I personally thought it was interesting because in that scene, 
for all intents and purposes, he is the beta and they are the alphas. He is definitely the one that's the most out of the, his comfort zone in that scenario. And I've been in that situation where I'm not in, and, and this is just a projection, but like I'm not a person that's in shape. So when I'm hanging around guys that are ripped, like, I obviously don't want to take my shirt off around them. And the actor that plays Mont, you know, you see him shirtless a lot on um, Lovecraft Country, and the dude is huge. But it was just really interesting that in this shot, you have Jimmy and Kofi, who Kofi is heavily tattooed. Jimmy isn't as heavily tattooed, but you can feel, but you can see he, he, he's kind of a more rugged, rough upbringing. And then you have Mont in the robe. And I just thought that, that was really interesting, having Mont still in the rove and still kind of almost being the more detached one from that conversation. Yeah, and that one of my favorite lines when Mont's sitting in the chair and he goes, you guys want to have a Schmitz? I know. He's, He's like, like, what? what? He's like, what? And he, the next scene, you see him like lighting up a joint. I thought that was fantastic. But no, uh, I want to dive back a little bit to what you were saying because when Kofi first comes over to the house, he's he's like talking about how did you how did you get this house, whatever. And he makes a comment and says, yeah, Jimmy and I used to be in a boy's home together, which gives you even more context of to how shitty of a dad that Jimmy's dad is. Uh, and he's like, yeah, we we lived at a boy's home together for a while. They start telling pretty intimate detail stories about like going there and the things that had happened. And Mont really does feel like the outsider looking in in that scenario. And then when they go into that sauna, he makes uh, Kofi makes that comment, and it's it's beautiful. He's like asking about going to the bathroom or whatever. And right before he goes man, I really wish my grandfather would have left me something like this. And that like really hit me because it's it's like he really hasn't gotten this from his grandfather, but like it makes you question Kofi's life and like growing up in a boy's home and dealing with like not having parents around and trying to build yourself up as a person where a lot of us who had parents when we were growing up or had some sort of familial structure had people trying to teach you how to live your life and who to be. But like this is a person who even from youth had to try to figure out who they were on their own. I just thought that, that was so beautiful and that scene with the three of them in the sauna is probably one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie as far as like just the bonding between three people and all of that um, all of that like the cultural stuff and the and the trying to have to fit into a certain bubble just kind of melts away and they can just be who they are as people. There's a scene also that we skipped over that I just want to circle back around real quick. It's right after they've left. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because there was such a powerful quote there. And I feel like Mont's character is just riddled with a lot of powerful moments. It's when they move out and they're all kind of making fun of him because they're moving out. And he's he's drawing. And then when they get to the house, they're actually, which I thought this was really funny, they're like, making eggs and then they look at the white couple across the street mm -hmm. yeah i love that but then um he's like why he notices that mont drew all of them and he's like why did you draw them they're always being mean and teasing you and then mont says something to the effect of like i think it's dumb that i can't appreciate them just that i can't that's the word that he uses that i can't appreciate them just because they're mean to me i think that's dumb so i thought that was so that i that line hit me so hard because i feel like in 2022 we live in this world like oh you're different than me get away from me and i think it's shortly after this scene that 
Jimmy and Ma are riding on the bus together, and that's where Jimmy runs into his mom. Because so what what happens is that they go out, and so this is what happens. They come back, and they go get some flowers for, for the house, and they find the white lady had moved sitting on the front porch saying, which I thought, again, circling back to the motif of the house, she's like, they changed the locks on me. And they're like, how long are you going to be here? And she's like, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how to let go. So then they leave and that's when they get on the bus and they run into um, Jimmy's mom. Which the way that that scene is shot, I am someone who intimate character dramas really get me. And I'm, I'm guessing it's probably has to do a lot with like my upbringing and the broken relationship that I have with my own parents and the way things have kind of gone in my own life. But like... That scene where he looks up and he sees his mom, I didn't even need any explanation to who that was to know who it was immediately. And, like, I, I burst into tears the first time I watched the movie because you watch this guy the entire movie who you find out he was in a boy's home and that his dad he doesn't have a good relationship in. And we didn't even talk about it earlier, but Jimmy's job is he works at, like, a nursing home taking care of people. Like, his whole life is caring for other people and putting other people first to where the only time he puts himself first is when it comes to this house. And he sees his mom who... Like, clearly he has virtually no relationship with. And you can tell the entire time they have a conversation. Like, he makes a comment about her coming into town. And she's like, oh, I was going to reach out, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, hey, you should come by my house for whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. And you know immediately when they have that conversation that she's not going to show up. Well, and then I mentioned this earlier when there's that, that moment where he's like, I didn't know. I thought you were in East L.A. And she's like, no, we moved back like a few weeks ago. So we know that she's been in San Francisco for long, you know, longer than a week. And the, th the first thought I had was like, and you couldn't be bothered to look up your son. So that just speaks that volume of that detachment that he probably has from, from his mom. She just didn't even care to look up her own son when she was back in town. And then that's shortly after that, that... Mont and Jimmy go back to Mont's house. They're going to go back to the house and Kofi confronts Jimmy and them and starts making horrible comments about Jimmy's dad because his buddies start making fun of or Kofi's quote-unquote buddies make fun of him about being effeminate or calling him gay or whatever. And it's a really intense scene because you think about how homely and inviting that Jimmy and Mont were to Kofi, and he immediately flips the script to try to appeal to those guys who are complete assholes just because he wants to fit in. And I feel like everyone has had an experience similar to, to that because I feel like, I don't know, Growing up, especially in, in the time that, that we grew up, there was a lot of things that we did to appeal to, to the people around us, whether it be, you know, you couldn't be fully yourself about your sexuality or how you present yourself or, you know, even the type of women you're into. Um, I've talked to this with a lot of my female friends about how, you know, you grew up, especially in the early 2000s and in the 90s, that the archetypal, the archetype of women that you were supposed to like, it had to be this like skinny, thin girl. And, you know, now you have this whole movement of body positivity. But a lot of that has stemmed from this current generation, because back then, in order for you to be one of the boys, you had a like the specific type of women and you couldn't behave a certain way and you couldn't like certain things so 
And for these two characters, they obviously don't fit what they feel is the archetype of uh, an African-American, especially in these like really poor um, neighborhoods. So it's really interesting seeing and I'm, I'm going back to the scene we talked about earlier where Mont kind of pretends to be this director to them and you see Kofi react differently and then you see them engage in the house and now how he's behaving separately. It's almost like he's having a similar identity crisis that they are having, but he's taking the, the other road, the road where he has to appease to his his quote-unquote more, quote, masculine friends. And unfortunately, that ends up biting him on the ass because literally right after this, like the next day, Jimmy and Mott run into that group of people who they're all breaking down and they essentially tell them that Kofi got killed by someone who he got into a fight with. And we learn literally right after that that this this toxic masculinity that the movie has been commenting on the entire time ended up getting this guy killed who for all intensive purposes was a good soul. He was a good person who was just trying to fit into this group of people and this idea of what he had to be in this group of people. And it's it's heartbreaking because like when this scene happens and you see those guys who have been hyper masculine the entire movie really start to break down. It's a really difficult scene to watch. Yeah, that scene where because I thought it was it was really powerful where they walk up to to this this crowd this crowd and then one of them immediately starts trying to pick a fight with Jimmy and because Jimmy is asking questions about what happened. I thought this scene was really powerful where he's like, he's trying to pick a fight and then everyone starts egging him on like, are you going to let him talk to you that way? And everyone's egging him on. And then suddenly Jimmy kind of flips a little bit and he goes, you know, screw you. This is your fault. He was my friend too. And at that point, this guy, I, I don't think they even mentioned his name. He just breaks down and hugs Jimmy and starts sobbing on his shoulder just immediately. It's super difficult to watch, and it just goes to show you that, like, even those guys in the group who thought they were just these really hard and, and rough guys, are but they have emotions. They're human beings. And at the end of the day, when we strip all of the facade away of who we try to be as people and how we try to act, we're all just human beings. We all have emotions. And, th and it hits even harder because legitimately right after that, Jimmy goes to that back to the house and all of his furniture is on the side of, of the road. And they see a sign posted outside of the house that is the realtor that they talk to. And I, that scene, when they look at the at the house, because you don't even expect it. And, and at, one, at, at first, you almost think that it was the woman, because they even assume it's the woman that, that got in the house somehow and took all their stuff out. And that's when Mont's like, I don't think it's her. And then that's when he sh reveals that it's the realtor guy. And I thought it was interesting that Jimmy just grabs like a handful of clothes and tells Mont, hey, stay here. I got to go do something. And it turns out that he attempts to go get a loan. But in like the most like just desperate way possible where you can tell he's wearing a suit coat that probably wasn't even his. He looks uncomfortable wearing it, but he's just like pleading with this banker to give him a loan. And he's like, I don't care if it's the highest interest rate. This is all I ever wanted. I'm not going to fold because people go look for things that they want in the house. But for me, this is all I ever wanted. This is the only thing I ever wanted. And kind of shows that like 
obsession he has with this house and how badly he wants it. Meanwhile, um, you have Mont going over to confront the realer guy to be like, hey, you know, you, you, you did this behind our backs. Uh, so there's this like dual confrontation going on with, with these characters. It's, it's tough to watch. Like, it's really just the last ditch effort. And there's a quote in the movie and I think... I don't think it's at this moment, but it ends up coming up at some point where where Jimmy makes the comment essentially and says like I was the last one left and and like you know that how important this was to him and how much this house means to him and it, it's just really difficult because the movie just like piles it all up at the same time and they end up going to visit the realtor to kind of fight with him about it and that's when it's revealed that the realtor says hey i've got the deed to the house this wasn't built by your grandfather it was actually built in the 1850s and that's another just like nail in the coffin as like uh god this movie is piling up every negative thing on you at the exact same time but i think it's worth mentioning though that it's just mont that hears that about the the deed and and Mont realizes that that house isn't. And I thought this was really interesting because even though Mont knows that the house isn't Jimmy's, because the realtor even tells him, like, look, I'll let you stay there for a week so you can find a new place, but then you have to leave. And he goes back to talk to, to Jimmy, which is when Jimmy says that he he's the last one left. And he's like, you don't have to stay. And even though Mont knows what happened, he still stays with Jimmy. He still stays there um, to, to help him. Even though he already knows that that is not actually jimmy's grandpa's house right after that is when mont is working on the the play ab about the aftermath of kofi's death and jimmy starts advertising it everywhere and um on the day that they go to have it that's when jimmy's in the car or in the bus and he hears those women talking shit about san francisco he looks at them and he says do you love it and they say like what and he says, do you love it? And he said, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. But these people are just acting like San Francisco is the worst place in the world. And San Francisco is the most important thing in the world to Jimmy. This house is the most important thing to him. And I just thought that it really, that, that quote really resonated heavy with me when I watched it. Well, and then you have that play that first, because he, you know, and I thought it was interesting that they, they named the play The Last Black Man in San Francisco. But it's referential to Kofi, really, at least at first, he starts getting, you know, it's like a one-man play, essentially. And something that I love, and this is just like a really, a side note, like, this isn't really, like, important. It's just a highlight that I wanted to point out is when he sees that, that um, when Mont is putting together the play, you kind of get that montage of him putting everything together. And he sees that homeless guy singing that song, the San Francisco song. I just, uh, it's just, I just thought it was worth noting that that acapella rendition of that song was incredible. Oh, it was amazing. And then you talked about when he starts performing the play. I thought one of the most fascinating parts of it was when Mont started reading the different social media posts about Kofi's death. And I thought that really hit hard. Uh, because we live in a country right now where there's like shootings every day. And people are constantly dying. And it's like you'll see these people who like were nobodies at their school who get killed. And then it's like everyone in the world is their best friend. Everyone in the world knows them perfectly. And he ends up screaming like they, they none of these people knew him. They didn't know anything about him. They didn't know who they, they were. And it's like 
they're just online spouting it because this guy died. And then he starts to ask people in the crowd to talk about Kofi. And Jimmy's statement about Kofi was beautiful. And that's when he makes that comment where he says, people aren't just one thing. And that like shook me. I thought that was just one of the most beautiful quotes of the entire movie. But I thought it was interesting, though, because at this point in the film, we know that, and this obviously gets revealed a few minutes later, but we know that the house, that Mott knows that that wasn't Jimmy's grandpa's house, that he didn't build it. We know all these things about Jimmy at this point, and even though Jimmy is saying this thing about, like, why aren't just this one thing, Jimmy is still clinging on to this one thing, which is the house, so I just thought that was really interesting that Jimmy mentions makes that that mentions that that's like you're not just one thing but then he continues even to this moment to cling on to the fact that this one thing which is the house and he has tied his entire identity to this house at this point mention it beforehand but like his dad is there which makes this whole situation even more uncomfortable because of how detached their relationship is together. And that's what ends up leading to Mont telling Jimmy, like, hey, your grandfather didn't build this house. Like, it's not his. And Jimmy ends up running out, and the entire people in the audience end up leaving at the same time. And they're all super confused because the, pl the play just takes in a, just an abrupt turn, and he's like, I know this isn't... Like, I saw the deed. And... You see Jimmy then sitting with his dad, and he was like, "Is it true?" And then the dad was like, "I'm not. T I don't have to tell you anything." Which I thought that was really interesting because you soon after that find out that Jimmy knew all along that it wasn't, but he's even questioning it there towards the end. Like, is it true that Grandpa didn't build this house? I want to say really quickly because I skipped over it, but in this scene. Mont has a quote that I thought was absolutely beautiful, and I wrote this down, and Ray, I'm sure you loved it as much as me, but when Mont makes the comment, he says, let us give each other the courage to see beyond the stories we were born into. I loved that. That, I feel like, sums, that I feel like sums up every message of the movie sort of cumulatively in a way that like is just so brilliant and simplistic, but really kind of ties it all together in a way that's just amazing. And so after this whole thing happens, Jimmy ends up meeting up with Mont at the dock and says, tells him essentially that he knew the entire time that his grandfather didn't build the house, but that he wanted something to grasp onto. And and it's a difficult admission, but it's like, I feel like there's, there's things in life consistently for all of us as human beings that we try to hold on to, to, to just have something to fight for. And you can't really fault Jimmy for feeling that way. I, I mean, like, even when you find that out at the end, I was never mad at him for it. I, I understood it, and I totally got it, why he was feeling that way. There's uh, just a little quick thing that I want to go back to before the play. When his dad shows up, and I, I wanted to bring this up because this kind of was something that hit me hard, too. They opened, He opens the door, and the dad's standing there, and he looks at Jimmy, and the first thing he says, even though this is his dad, the first thing he says to Jimmy is like, "You, why are you dressed like a white boy? And that, that scene hit me because I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've been told, well, you don't look like a Hispanic. You don't behave like a Hispanic. You don't come off as a Hispanic. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, I thought you were white when I met you. And, I mean, I don't take that as an offense. I don't I don't get offended by that. It's, it's not something that I, you know, lose my head over. But it is a thing. Where people just like, the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you present yourself, people immediately assume, oh, you must not be X, Y, or Z. 
So this I thought was interesting because I've been I've been in that situation where people are like, oh, I didn't think you were Latin. Or my favorite one is I would tell people that I don't dance and I don't know how to dance. And the immediate reaction is like, well, I thought you were Latin. So like that constant like pushback on what defines your culture, but your culture doesn't necessarily define who you are. I saw a meme the other day that I, I just I thought it was funny, but poignant that said tradition is just peer uh, peer pressure from the dead <laughs> that is that and might be that my so that might be my new favorite quote actually peer yeah tradition is peer pressure from the dead i mean honestly if you think about it a lot of traditions that we have in this country as a whole are just really stupid i mean like I, I was talking to my wife about it this year like on the 4th of july you have all these people going out and shooting off fireworks and things and it's like what do we have to be excited about as a country right now with roe versus wade being overturned with uh lgbtq rights constantly being put into question shit with some of these senators out there who are literally getting to the point where they're questioning interracial marriages we don't have things to celebrate and it's almost like people just do it because it's what everyone's always done and that is such a stupid thing and and i agree with you i think that quote is hilarious because our country is so guilty of constantly doing that and this movie really has a lot of heavy commentary on that and that was it it, it just it hit me really hard and you just saying that made it kind of resonate even more in my brain but right after that conversation between jimmy and mont saying that he knew that he didn't build the house. He goes into Mont's house and they watch TV together. And then he waked, Mont wakes up the next morning super early and Jimmy's gone. He leaves a note and he says, hey, I didn't know how to say goodbye to you, but I, I love you. You're my best friend, says all this stuff. Mont ends up doing a bunch of stuff that they used to do together. They, uh, you can tell that he just doesn't feel the same about it because Jimmy's gone. And he ends up going to the dock by himself and he sees Jimmy in the last shot of the film, which is gorgeous, in this boat rowing beside the Golden Gate Bridge. Essentially, in my opinion, saying that he's finally departed from this being connected to this city and is moving on to whatever's next in his life. And it's almost told in a, it's almost shot in like a fantastical way. So that could all, I interpreted that, that that's like, you know. Mont being a writer and having a broad imagination to craft stories that that could just be like Mont giving him like a heroic departure when he could have just easily gotten on a bus or something, you know, but he gave him like in his mind to me, it almost seems like that's Mont almost like revering, not revering, but like respecting and giving him like a heroic send off for the story. So I thought that was really, that was really cool because even th that scene is shot in like a very fantastical way. It doesn't look like the rest of the film. It almost feels like a, like a very triumphant shot. Yes, 100%. And I think it's a absolutely brilliant way to end the film. And I honestly, even talking about it with you right now, Ray, I'll just, I'll say it again. And I've said it about this movie before. I, I truly believe that this movie is a modern masterpiece. I, I like just talking about the themes with, with you in more detail right now. It's just so incredibly well put together. And it's a film that I feel like I've seen it like four times already. And I feel like I could sit downstairs right now and watch it again. And it would resonate with me even more. And I can tell even by the way you're talking about it, that this has got to be one of your favorites in A24's catalog. Well, I feel like there's such a resonance because... I don't know. I feel like this movie, you don't have to be African-American to understand 
that um, culture identity. Be I feel like everyone can feel that culture identity because to me, culture isn't the color of your skin um, per se. Like, you know, like I'm sure for you, for example, identifying as LGBT, but also growing up in a highly conservative household, that must have been a cultural um, identity crisis for you. Just like for me, being able to go to like, you know, going to, uh, here's, and there, you might find this kind of interesting. When I moved to the United States, I, you know, I didn't speak any English. So I made myself the promise that I was going to learn the language and to be able to articulate the things that I wanted to say. Because for me, language has always been an important thing, just regardless of, of language barriers. To me, it's just, language is fascinating to me. I remember like when I was younger, I would watch movies subtitled and I would try to learn new vocabulary words. And then I would try to use these vocabulary words at school and people would look at me like I was insane because I was using these like college level words that I learned from all these like films. And like a, a word that typically a 15, 16 year old wouldn't use in their vernacular, I was using and it wasn't because I was oh, oh so smart. It was just, I just thought language was fascinating. So I wanted to learn English like as proper as possible. So then for a long time, I thought my English was terrible because I was like, no one understands what I'm saying. But that was my, the own, my own pressure that I had put upon myself that I wanted to fit in with this culture so badly that it was almost like detrimental in a way. Makes sense. And, and just to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, um, growing up in a really highly conservative Christian household, you know, and not not just growing up in a conservative Christian household, but growing up in a conservative Christian household where I was a minister's child, like even the thought process of having, you know, any sort of emotional or romantic interest in the same sex or a transgender person or anything like that completely out of the question like I couldn't even entertain those thoughts without not only worrying about what the perception of my parents was going to be or the church community was going to be but also thinking like I'm going to burn in hell for eternity because that's what you're being told constantly and so you can't ever really like embrace those feelings or those emotions for the longest time and honestly it's not really something I even came to terms with in my own life until I was in my late 20s and so it, it's really something I've had a long time processing and that it, it it's it's what you said it's it's not the same in a way as like being judged differently for the color of your skin or from where you come from but it is a difficult internal struggle where it's like you can never fully identify as who you are as a person because you're worried about all those outside ramifications and it's so refreshing when you finally get to a point where you can kind of push all that away and just be who you are and love who you are as a person where like I see you who you are now and even being someone from Hispanic descent who you might not feel like that you are one hundred percent aligned with what that is or or what people perceive that is you seem to be your own person and come into yourself in a way that like you're comfortable and happy with who you are you embrace your personality traits and you're living who you are as a person and that is the most important thing that we can do as people and i think that movie this movie really resonates that message through so hard and it just left me feeling immensely joyful even though like the end of the film isn't 100 percent like the most 
incredibly joyful thing. It made me feel really good. Similar to what we said about her, where her ends on a little bit more of like a, a it has like an optimism, but it's still relatively somber. But that movie still puts me in a mood where I feel amazing when it ends. And that's exactly how I felt when I got done with this movie. Yeah. Well, and I feel like when that's the point I was trying to, to get to is that like, I don't think you need to be an African-American person to feel that connection with the themes of this film. So, yeah, it, and it leaves you in a very um, kind of like a thoughtful place where you're just thinking about, you know, the things that it kind of leaves you looking towards the future of what we can do. Because at the end of the day, for me personally, this movie just speaks to being your own person. So what are we doing to be our own our own people? You know, so I, I, to me, this movie just resonated in so many levels. And it's been a, it's been a minute since I've been able to watch. You know, I watch a lot of horror and a lot of sci-fi and I love that genre. They're always going to be some of my favorites, but they don't like I, I don't they don't talk about these topics so bluntly and so blatantly like this movie does but it does it in a way where it's it's not ham-fisted it's done very tastefully and yeah i agree this is this is a 10 out of 10 movie and i'm so glad you recommended it yeah there's literally uh i was talking to my wife about it before uh we started we started recording and i don't think you know we talk about movies all the time and sometimes like even if there's a movie i really love there's like one or two things that i could be like oh i'd change this about that or oh i'd do this different there is not a single thing i would do different about this movie i think it just 100 percent does exactly what it wants to do in the best way possible and just leaves you in this state of feeling amazing and i i i don't know i i'm i'm glad this movie made like double its budget thank goodness and i know it won a lot of like independent spirit awards and there was a lot of different things that that it did win but i still feel like an a24's catalog that not enough people have watched this movie and if you have not seen this movie and you listen to ray and i just talk about the whole thing just go watch it anyways because we can't even do it it's due diligence uh talking about it like you you really just need to experience this on your own yeah I agree. And also, even if like, even if we would have explained the movie perfectly, it's still an experience. Oh, and this, and, and I know we're, we beat this to death, but it's because Ray and I love it. But the score and the cinematography in this film, oh my God, like it's just, it's like just top tier in every way. Yeah. So go watch it. The takeaway is in this episode is go watch Last Black Man on San Francisco. It's, it's worth every second. Yes, and 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 Ray, aren't you glad that you uh, that you picked up that Blu-ray copy from your record store? Oh my goodness, I am so excited because I feel like if I would have picked up just your like your ten dollar copy, I would have just turned around and bought that Blu-ray copy from A twenty four. Anyway, it honestly like I was looking at it earlier up next to my Midsommar one and it rivals the packaging on that one like gorgeous and the booklet inside of it has so much great information. I'm really excited to kind of dive in and watch a lot of the special features on it as well. There's shock. Not that many special features shockingly. I thought they would have added more but. I am excited to watch what they do have. Exactly. So that was Ray and I's discussion on The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Ray and I love A24. I'm assuming we're doing this five-episode stint, but I have a feeling this won't be the last time we talk about A24 stuff on this podcast. Yeah, I no, that we are not we're not done there yet. No, not at all. So this segues us into Ray. I think you and I both have been enjoying this probably 
some of the most on the, on the podcast is talking about what we watched this week. And uh, do you have something you'd like to talk about that you watched this week? Um, I just start literally one episode because they're they're airing them weekly. Shutter, you know, Shutter, please sponsor us. They just released a show called The Hundred and One Scariest Horror Moments of All Time. Oh, that sounds awesome! I need to watch that. I am a big, I'm a sucker for these like docu series that Shutter has. And they just released this one where they're just doing a countdown. And I think it's like 10 moments on every episode where they do this countdown of like, you know, these the, these scary moments in horror movies. And they'll kind of break down um, what made them so effective, whether it be the lighting, the cinematography, the special effects, the script, um, the acting, the pacing of it, like, or the score. Like So they kind of break down. Um, and they have both like film scholars and then they'll have like, you know, on this episode that I watched, they had, you know, Edgar Wright, they had Greg Nicotero and all of these different um, horror adjacent writers. And yeah, it, it's really fascinating and they break down and it's just kind of fun to relive some of those horror moments too. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm a sucker for their series, on uh, their docuseries that Shudder has been putting out lately, like that or Cursed Films is another one that I've really been enjoying. So yeah, that's... That's the biggest one that kind of has stuck with me right now. That sounds fantastic. And the thing I'm going to talk about also is up on Shudder right now. And it's a movie that I got recommended by someone on TikTok that has been on my list for forever. And that is the animated psychological thriller Perfect Blue, which is probably one of the best psychological horror movies I've ever seen. Uh, I would highly recommend you watch this, Ray. It is unbelievable. It's about this girl who is like a popular pop singer who she decides that she no longer wants to be a pop singer and she wants to be an actress. And this guy starts like stalking her and all this crazy stuff starts happening. It honestly had my brain so scrambled that until the very end where you get the concise closure as to what's happening, I literally like my brain was scrambled. I was like, what in the hell did I just watch? But in the best way possible. It was made in 1990. The animation is incredible. The score is fantastic. Like, if you have not seen Perfect Blue, this is, go watch it. It is phenomenal. Cool. I'm probably going to add it right now to my list. It's only like an hour and 20 minutes, so it'll be a super quick watch for you. Uh, but yeah, that's what we've been watching this week. So uh, if you have anything you'd like to tell Ray and I about that you have been watching yourselves or things you might want us to talk about on the podcast later on, hit us up on Instagram at the Film Monsters Podcast. Ray and I are very responsive. We love talking to you guys. We love hearing comments. I actually uh, had someone reach out to me on my TikTok today and said that they just discovered the podcast and they're binging all the episodes and they love it so much. And hearing things like that always brings me a lot of joy. I know it makes Ray really happy to hear when people love it. So if you're enjoying it, let us know. Let us know what more you want because Ray and I have a lot of ideas. We're coming into spooky season. Ray, I don't know how excited you are about it, but I can't wait for that spooky season. 
Well, neither can I. And um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm stoked. I, I, I'm excited for what we got coming and to be able to just talk more at length about it without being so secretive. I, I We don't have anything like humongous. It's not like we're going to do something some crazy thing but but just talking talking horror it's going to be really fun and i'm really excited oh my so yes at the film monsters podcast you can also follow myself at my exit unfair ray at analog c we post uh, a lot of uh, vinyl scores we post albums that we love we post a lot of whatever we want so you can hit us up on those platforms and next week's episode is going to be a lot of fun similar to the science fiction season we did where ray and i kind of just openly talked about creatures and discussed that uh we're going to just kind of talk about some of our favorite uh directors that a24 has worked with a couple times it's going to be much more of like a loose conversation we're just going to talk about films in general not really like like specifically guiding you through anything more just like our way of talking about filmmakers that we love films in a24's catalog that like from directors that have worked with them multiple times that we think are worth watching so i'm really looking forward to that ray it'll be a little bit different than what we've done before but i think it'll be a lot of fun yeah and also i just kind of want to um with the spooky season coming up um i've been trying to work on a few things to kind of hopefully make things more engaging with our social media so stay tuned for that as i tweak out some of the last minute things that i'm working on i can't wait to hear what you've got cooking up in your kitchen over there that is very exciting news um so yeah that's what we're going to be talking about next week so we're going to talk about a24 directors and then we'll have one more a24 episode before we start cooking up things for the spooky season so get ready because ray and i have a lot of plans for that we're looking forward to talking about uh spooky movies you can uh look at the instagrams where ray and i'll probably post a lot of things about horror movies and we look forward to doing that for you and thank you so much for listening this week and we look forward to next week's episode that's right everybody take care and go watch don't worry my darling Goodbye. Go watch it opening weekend for Florence Pugh. For Miss Flo. Goodbye, everyone, and Florence Pugh in particular.